and welcome to the Plant School Podcast. I'm Rachel Tenney, and here we learn all about plants, how they work, how to care for them, and it's all taught in a way that anyone from beginner to expert can listen to, understand, and enjoy. So I hope that you will join me in Plant School. Hello, hello, and welcome to Plant School. I feel like at the beginning of these episodes, I have like a little announcement minute, so I'm going to continue with that. I just want to say that next episode, I will be doing another giveaway, so if you would like to win a free plant trip, go ahead and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you've already done so, great. You are entered in and you have a chance to win in the next episode, which I guess is in two weeks. I will be choosing another winner because I really appreciate you guys. And if you would like to help keep this podcast going and give back to it, one of the best ways to do that is to become a podcast supporter. There's a link in the description of every episode. So if you go down, it'll say support this podcast. And if you click on that link, a little pop-up will come up and allow you to set up a monthly donation of a dollar five dollars or ten dollars and you can stop it at any time but that just really helps keep this podcast going because I do put a lot of time and love into it. I want to thank my newest monthly supporters Aaron, Jessica, and Anita. You guys know who you are and I really appreciate you and if you would like to join them in supporting this podcast I would appreciate that so much even if it is just a dollar a month It means the world to me, and it does make a difference in this podcast continuing on. And as always, I do also have merch if you would rather support the podcast in that way. The link is in the description of every episode as well. So let's dive into the meat of this episode. We are talking about biohacking your houseplant. And to start off, it's a little bit of a disclaimer. So when we get into the definition of biohacking... In the dictionary, it's defined as the activity of exploiting genetic material experimentally without regard to accepted ethical standards or for criminal purposes. So that's not really what we're going to be doing. Definitely not promoting criminal or unethical practices. We're more talking about how you can manipulate houseplants or any plants in general Biohacking just kind of sounded cooler, so that's literally why I titled it the way I did, because manipulating your houseplants, I don't know, it just doesn't have a ring to it. It Sounds like we're like gaslighting houseplants, and it it just didn't sound as cool, so we're biohacking them, minus the criminal part. So we're going to be going over how to make your plant grow roots, how to make them flower, and how to make them grow stems all with science. And I'm going to kind of dive into the science. This is Plant School. We love to learn about plants. And this is definitely an episode where we are going to be learning some new things. It's pretty sciencey. So if that's your thing, buckle up. It's going to be fun. If it's not your thing, buckle up. It's still going to be fun. (laughs) So let's start off with maybe the most common one, which is rooting hormone. Now, if you've been in the houseplant world for a while, you have probably heard of people talking about rooting powder. You've probably used it before yourself. It also comes in a gel, and as you probably know, 
these gels and these powders, they contain rooting hormones. They help increase the likelihood and the vitality of roots on your cuttings of plants. So they can be really helpful. But let's kind of talk about how they work because we know that if we dip a cutting into this rooting powder or into this gel, that helps our roots. But how? Like what is going on on a cellular level? So all plants naturally possess hormones and it helps with their daily functions. And so one of those hormones is auxin and it's produced in immature parts of the plant to really help promote growth. Auxin is specifically for root growth primarily. It helps in other areas, but primarily it's for root growth. So in your rooting gels and in your rooting powders, there are synthetic auxins that have been created and they are sending signals for your plant to start growing roots. And it's really interesting, the history of auxin. It was actually the first plant hormone to be discovered, and it was discovered by plant scientists starting in the mid-1930s. So honestly, I feel like it's not that long ago. And as you'll see with some of these other plant hormones and how to manipulate your plants or biohack them, some of these hormones have like really recent research. It's just some of them aren't really understood that well. So a lot of like cutting edge stuff is going on with some of these. So starting in the mid-1930s for the plant hormone auxin, which helps our roots, there have been studies that show that it can induce gene activity and signal molecules in developing these adventitious roots in the formation of them. So in 1935, they found that there was a specific acid that was really helping with auxin activity, and that was indole-3-acetic acid, or IAA. And so it was really helping with auxin activity. It was helping stimulate the roots on cuttings. And then shortly after that, after 1935, they discovered IBA, which is indole-3-butyric acid. And they also discovered another acid in AA, which is A-naphthalene acetic acid. Both of those acids were found to be more effective than the first one, IAA. So both IBA and NAA are the most widely used auxins for rooting hormones. And if you look at your label on your rooting hormone bottle, most of them have IBA or indole-3-butyric acid. So if you grab your bottle right now or when you get home, you will see that it has IBA in it. When I looked at mine, it had a 0.1% IBA and the other 99.9% was listed as other ingredients, which is probably just like talc powder and it helps it stick to the plant. And you might be thinking like, oh my gosh, what a ripoff. And it's really simply because if you have too much, it's not going to work. There's like a sweet spot of how much IBA, this auxin-promoting acid that you want to be adding to your plant. So if you did have a really high percentage, it would probably just burn the tip that you dip it into. So it's not them trying to give you a really bad deal or anything like that. And if you are working with hardwood cuttings or something a little more sturdy, the IBA values do go up very slightly. The 0.1% in your rooting 
powder bottles are perfect for softwood cuttings. So your houseplants, they are softwood cuttings and the 0.1% is perfect for them. If you are propagating something like fruit trees, those semi-hardwood to hardwood cuttings, the percentage can go up to 0.4%, even up to 1%, and that's the sweet spot for those type of cuttings as well. And since IBA, this naturally occurring plant auxin hormone, it is not toxic and it is safe to handle. So you can get it on your hands. It's not going to burn them or anything like that. It's completely safe. You would have to ingest pounds upon pounds of rooting powder to have any sort of serious reaction. And we kind of talked about toxicity in our last episode, how everything technically can be toxic if you eat enormous amounts of anything. And so IBA has a very low toxicity level. And the EPA, they even did an assessment on plants that use synthetic rooting hormones just to like test if these powders and these gels were posing a risk to the public. And they found that there was no risk to humans or to the environment. And again, this is because indole-3-butyric acid or IBA, it breaks down really rapidly and it does occur naturally in the environment inside of plants so it doesn't pose a risk to us and kind of taking a step back from that it does take your rooting powder or gel about two to eight weeks for the roots to actually appear when you are using those hormones some people have claimed that you can skip using rooting powders and hormones and you can use like other household items, and they will work just as well. So here are some of those suggestions that people say like, oh, you don't need rooting powder, you can use this instead. So they say honey diluted with water. Also, people suggest using apple cider vinegar diluted with water. Some suggest using your saliva as a natural root enhancer. You can just spit on them or lick them, whatever you fancy. Some people suggest cinnamon, aspirin, kind of crushed up and added to water, and then you can dip or soak your cuttings into that. You can use aloe vera gel or willow water. And willow water, since that's like not a common term, basically what it is is cut up willow plants and you put them in water. They do have IBA naturally occurring in the stems, And so the idea is if you soak it in water, the water will have that IBA in it and help your cuttings root if you dip them in the willow water. And it's actually been found that willow water, the IBA levels are minuscule, lower than our 0.1% that's found in our powder bottles. And it doesn't really work. It is too weak. And these other home remedies I watched quite a few videos of people trying to test them. So it would be like an owner of an orchard and he tried propagating some of his cuttings in honey and then some using his traditional rooting powder that he normally uses. And as you can imagine, the honey did not work. It didn't work, guys, at all. So for these home remedies, I cannot back any of them up. In fact, looking into most of them, 
it was just a lot of anecdotal evidence, people saying, oh yeah, this worked for me. There's really nothing science-based about them. Some of them do have antifungal or antibacterial properties, which I guess could help with root growth because it's keeping those things away from the roots and they can develop without having bacteria and fungi really get at them. So that could help, but also they aren't necessarily helping with the roots growing. So in my opinion, I would stick with the IBA powders, with the gels, because those are science-backed. It's the actual acid that will produce auxin production and help with those roots. If you also want to add cinnamon or spit into the soil before you put it into the soil or I don't know, put it into water, you can, and that's fine. You can do what you want, but I think the actual rooting powder and gel is the way to go. And if you've never used these products and you're wondering, oh, like, do I need to buy some? Is this what I need to do to have roots? No, not necessarily. Roots will come even if you don't use these hormones. It just can really help, especially with those that are slow to root or things like succulents and those ornamental landscaping plants that are expensive and you really want those roots to come in. You don't want them to die and you have to buy more. So with things that are a little bit trickier, rooting gels and rooting powders are really beneficial for that. But you definitely don't have to have them. Don't think that I am telling you, you must buy rooting powders or gels because you definitely don't. And if you're wondering how to use them, again, if you've, you know, have never happened to use them before, what you do is you will, if you're using a powder, you will take a little bit, put it in a separate dish, and this is simply to avoid contaminating the entire jar. And you're going to dip the basal end or the bottom end of the cutting into your dish that has that little bit of powder into it. You're going to tap off the excess powder onto a hard surface so that you're left with just this fine film of powder on the end of your cutting. Again, you don't want a big old clump of it stuck to it. The reason why you're tapping off the excess is because you don't want a ton like I said, the IBA, if you get too much of it, it doesn't benefit you at all. That is why you're tapping off the excess. So you can kind of be in that sweet spot zone where it's going to actually help your cuttings. And then once you've done that, you can make a hole into the soil and set the cutting into the hole. That way you aren't removing the hormone by like pushing the cutting down into the soil and it's all just being wiped away or you can be setting them into water. And once you are done dipping your cuttings into the powder in your dish, you wanna throw away the leftover powder. You don't wanna add it back into the jar for risk of contamination. And just so you know, these jars of powder or of gel, they will last you a long time. They go a long ways, but they have a shelf life, which I honestly did not think about when I bought mine. I've been like trying to make it last for as long as I can, but they do last only about three to four years. And then after that, they just aren't nearly as effective. And both gel and powder work really well. It simply comes down to your personal preference. 
I love rooting powder because it's just so simple. There's also liquid rooting hormones. They can be a little bit harder and messier to work with. And a lot of people think they can be more effective. But the reason why they can be trickier is simply because they often come in concentrate solutions. So you do have to dilute it very carefully before you do use it. And that's why most people, most hobbyists will use the powder or the gels instead. I know this episode is kind of a lot, so we're going to be taking a few more breaks than usual, and so I'm going to have a break right here, and when we get back, I want to go into a flowering hormone, which is really interesting because it's actually something I did not know about before I did this episode. All right, I'm back, and I want to jump right in to this flowering hormone next, and this one I feel like is really fun and interesting because wouldn't we all just love our houseplants to flower? Flowers are beautiful. It's always fun to have them come naturally within our homes, but can we make it happen more often? And so initially, when I started researching this episode, I knew that gibberellins were used to help plants flower. And as I was diving in, I ran into something else that has recently been discovered. It's kind of a work in progress in the research world. And it is actually what most consider to be the initial factor in helping a plant flower. So this was really interesting to me. I had to do a lot of learning because I didn't know much about it. And so this flowering hormone is known as florigen. And it was first described by Soviet Armenian plant physiologist Mikhail Shelikayan. I am so sorry, Mikhail, if I messed up your name. Not super familiar with Armenian, to be completely honest here. So he was around in 1937, and what he did is he took a graft. So he took a piece of a plant, and when he put that graft onto a different plant, it actually helped induce flowers from one plant to another. And so there was obviously something going on with this graft introducing something that was helping the original plant flower. So there have been many studies afterwards and they showed various results and some showed that florigen was actually a gibberellin hormone and others showed that florigen was actually maybe it was an anathesin hormone and maybe it was needed to be classed in both of these hormone categories. We weren't really sure and so as a result of these problems with isolating florigen and figuring out where it was and inconsistent results with different studies we thought that maybe, you know, maybe florigen doesn't actually exist as an individual substance. But instead, maybe florigen's effect was like the result of other hormones and of these hormones being like in a certain ratio and it created a floral effect that was known as florigen. But this was not so. There have been more recent findings showing that florigen does exist. So it is a real thing. It is produced, or it's at least activated, in the leaves of a plant, and then the signal of florigen is transported via the phloem, and the phloem 
is simply these small tubes in a plant that are carrying around water and nutrients to a plant. So it's very important. It's kind of like a plumbing system in a plant. And so it's the phloem was taking the florigen to the growing tips at the shoot apical meristem, simply meaning the uppermost part of a plant, the tip of it. And that signal would act and induce flowering in the plant. And so there are ongoing studies with florigen. I tried to sum up all of them, but it's just a work in progress. And honestly, there's probably going to be more coming out as time goes on and I'll have to redo this episode years down the road and talk about it. So as recent as 2007, there was a group of scientists that really made a big breakthrough. So this is why I wanted to mention it. And they found that florigen, which they thought was just a piece of mRNA, it was actually controlled by a protein, specifically the flowering locus T protein. They simply call it the FT protein. So this protein is what was kind of controlling florigen and transmitting it from the leaves to the shoots. And this is what we now know. And so... With all of that in mind, florigen is kind of this hypothesized hormone-like molecule. A lot of people like to describe it as a proteinaceous hormone because it is actually a protein. It's not necessarily a hormone. And it is responsible for controlling and triggering flowering in plants. And like I mentioned before, it's very closely tied to this transcription gene, which is named the flowering locust T protein, or the FT gene or protein. And there are other genes that are important in this process. There's the gigantia protein, there's the gigantia, and the constans. I don't know who names these, but it sounds kind of like a fun time, to be honest. So the FT gene, the flowering locust gene activity, it starts in the leaves and then florigen activates, goes to those buds, goes to those growing tips, we create flowers. And because this activity starts in the leaves, really florigen, it all goes back to being very dependent on the sun. So you may be familiar with what photoperiodism is. And that's when plants have either short days that will trigger flowering or long days. So They're simply referred to as short-day plants or long-day plants. And short-day plants, they flower when the days are short and the nights are really long. And long-day plants will flower when the days or their daylight hours are long and the nights are short. And of course, in nurseries, you're able to easily manipulate that via shade cloth, via grow lights. You can kind of create your own photoperiodism in plants and get them to flower when you would like to. And really the underlying factor in these rhythms of night and day, whether it's artificial or natural, you know, out your window, is because the light that's coming in and being received by the leaves is what is stimulating the transmission of florigen to apex stems where they're going to flower and it's all because they're getting the correct amount of daylight and it is signaling to these genes the ft gene to hey start creating florigen it's time to flower we're getting the right amount of sun here we go and the research 
on Florigen, it kind of mainly revolves around one plant, at least so far it has, and that is Arabidopsis thaliana. And I've talked about this plant before. It is probably the most researched plant, or at least the most used, and that is because its entire genome, every single genome sequence has been mapped out. When you were in biology, AP bio, I have no idea what you took, and you learned about A, G, C, and T, adenine, guanine, cytosine, and what's T, thymine. When you learned about those and how every living thing is based on those four molecules, well, that's kind of what I'm talking about here. Arabidopsis thaliana, it has everything mapped out. All of those A's, G's, C's, and T's. It's all mapped out. And so because of that, a lot of researchers will use that to look for certain gene sequences to figure out what's causing this, what's causing that. And it's a really powerful tool. So for Florigen, it has been used in research, of course. And this is what they found, that the whole process of creating Florigen follows these three steps. Number one, is that there is photoperiod regulated initiation, meaning that we are relying on the sun to start this process of creating florigen for us. So that FT gene, along with some other genes, they're being activated and they are starting to create florigen. And florigen, I should mention, is a protein. They're creating this protein within the plant. And the next step is signal translocation via the phloem. So that signal in the genes is traveling up through the phloem, through the tubing or plumbing of the plant. And the third step is the induction of flowering at the shoot apical meristem. So at the very tip of your plants, the signal's there, the florigen is there, ready to tell the very tips of your plant to start flowers, that we are going to start opening, we're going to start producing flowers, and it's time to go. And so this is all very cool, but can we manipulate this and use it? And the answer is yes, we can through photoperiodism. If you can somehow control the amount of sun that your plant is getting, you can create this cycle. But what about like without that? Is there something like, you know, how we have rooting powder that we can just like put onto our plant? And this is where I'm not really sure. So there is a product out there called like Bloom Florigen and it's a foliar spray that claims to help these plants flower without really needing the sun. It doesn't need that photoperiodism that we were just talking about. And I tried to figure out, you know, what is it made of and how does it really work? And all I could find, this is what it said on like listed ingredients. It says various natural plant extracts, natural minerals, fulvic acid, vitamins, and amino acids. So nothing really pointing back to the florigen protein or how that could work. So I'm not really sure what is exactly in this bottle and how it works. I watched some of their marketing videos, I looked at the descriptions of how it works, and they just seemed very vague, kind of like the ingredient list. It just seemed vague. For example, one of their promises was that it promotes flower development through natural plant extracts. I'm like, what are those plant extracts that we're using? 
Like I want to know how. And so I tried finding reviews of this and honestly there weren't that many. I couldn't find any written reviews. There were just some star ratings and they seemed okay. Like people were giving it a high rating, but I've never personally used it. So I don't know if I can go ahead and vouch for this product because I have really no idea if it works. To me, because the research is so new, I'm not sure if there is a product out there that can synthetically create the fluorogen protein and have it just be some sort of foliar spray. I'm not sure how a plant would be able to absorb a protein via its leaves. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong here. Shoot me an email and explain it to me if I am just like not understanding. But for me, I am just uncertain of any product that's promoting that it can have fluorogen in it. And also, this product was quite expensive, 300 milliliters of it, which is about one and a quarter cups. It was $35 on average. To me, that seems pretty expensive, maybe just because like rooting powder, for example, is so inexpensive, maybe because it's a newer sort of line of research. The fluorogen is just more expensive than others, or maybe it's just an absolute like snake oil type of product. I don't know. I'm not sure. If you happen to know more about it and maybe you've used it and it does work and you really love it, let me know. And it it could very well work. Perhaps it's utilizing other things other than fluorogen and they're just kind of using fluorogen as more of a a marketing word to, to kind of excite consumers. I'm not sure, but it very well could work really well. But I just can't vouch for it because I haven't used it. Anyways, I'm going to take one more quick break, and when we come back, I have two other ways to biohack your houseplant, and these two do have actually vouched for products that have been used widely in the trade of houseplants that you could use yourself too. Okay, let's just dive right into this. Like I mentioned before, I have two more biohacking hormones, you could say, that I want to dive into. So I mentioned this one earlier, and it's gibberellins. So what are gibberellins? They are, like the others, a group of plant hormones that encourage budding and flower formation. So this group of plant hormones was first isolated in Japan in 1939, before World War II, And it was done by scientists who were trying to explain the abnormally tall growth and reduced yield of rice that was infected by this fungi called Gibberella fukikiori. And so what they did is they went in and they extracted the active ingredient that was working in the fungi. And they looked at its chemical structure and they saw that what was left, this chemical structure, was gibberellins, this plant hormone. And it was actually much later that they figured out that gibberellins was a naturally occurring hormone in plants. They had simply found it in this fungi and they didn't know that all plants had it. And today, we actually know that there are more than a hundred forms of gibberellins in plants, but only a few are really physiologically active and working within a plant at all times. So with that being said, the main one that's active is gibberellic acid. And this is the gibberellin that was found in the fungi 
and it is the most important commercial product. It is what is used in nurseries. You can even buy it yourself if you would like to use it as a hobbyist. And if you are wondering, why would I buy this? I will tell you why. So gibberellic acid, it helps in developing seeds, fruits, and elongating your shoots and roots. Kind of like the overall health of a plant really, but it is also used to trigger flowering in plants. So many nurseries will use gibberellic acid to help, you know, all of their stock start flowering at once when they need it to so that they can sell it. They also use other practices, don't get me wrong, they're not just relying on gibberellic acid. They use like things like pinching, pruning, using photoperiodism like we just talked about with Florigen and other practices like that. But gibberellic acid can be very beneficial to getting a plant to flower. So all on its own, your plants right now, they are making gibberellic acid in their roots, especially during the spring. And why it's there is because it's stimulating the plant to put out new shoots elongate the cells and promote overall growth in your plant happens in spring because usually that does come with warmer temperatures and longer days and that's when gibberellic acid really can take hold naturally within a plant and gibberellic acid the reason why it can promote the overall growth is because it does induce the formation of auxins which we talked about at the very beginning so it is helping those auxins produce and promote root growth, especially that's what auxins are known for is promoting root growth. And I saw some experiments, just they were just like on YouTube of people trying out gibberellic acid, seeing what would happen. I think it was radishes that I watched of what happens if you just add gibberellic acid to this radish and what happens to this other radish that has auxins and gibberellic acid added to it. So just a combination of plant hormones. And it was really interesting. I thought like, ooh, maybe the one with gibberellic acid, you know, maybe it would start producing more flowers, seed out more, do really well. But in all honesty, looking at the results, the one that just had gibberellic acid, it was kind of a long radish. It definitely wasn't the healthiest one. It just looked pretty long and stringy. But the one that had gibberellic acid and auxins, and also I think it had a well-balanced fertilizer that was added to it, it did very well. It was nice and round. It had a lot of growth on the top, as well as like the radish itself looked very healthy. So gibberellic acid is, if you were to buy it and you wanted it to help your plants flower, just realize that you should also be using fertilizer and you shouldn't just be relying on your gibberellins to be doing everything for your house plant, but it should be used in a combination with some other things. And the last thing I wanted to talk about that I think I probably heard about, oh goodness, it, it's maybe been like two months or so that I've heard about this product. It's really cool. And it actually, the science of it goes back to relying on a plant hormone. You guys may have heard of it. It's called kiki paste. And maybe you're like, oh my gosh, Rachel, I've known about this forever. 
well, good for you because this was news to me. So it's actually this paste that is primarily used with orchids. Maybe that's why I haven't heard of it very much because I'm not super involved with the orchid world. But actually, you can be applying it to many other plants. It doesn't have to just be orchids. So if you're like me and not super into orchids, you can be using this. And why would you want to use it? It's because this can encourage shoots on a growing plant. So it will literally help create another stem on your plant, which I think is so cool. In fact, as I'm sitting here thinking about it, I have this ginseng bonsai that's looking real scraggly and sad. I think I just might try using kiki paste on it, seeing if I can get it to work. So speaking of getting it to work, let's talk about how it works. And just like the past hormones we've talked about, this product is using a naturally occurring plant hormone to help with the shoot formation. And it's specifically using, this is a really long word, bear with me, it contains 6 benzylaminopurine. Benzylaminopurine, there we go. And it is a liquid synthetic cytokinin. So cytokinins is another class of plant hormones. They don't help with root formation. That's our auxins. And it doesn't really help with flowers. Flowers or elongation, that's our gibberellins. But they do help with adventitious bud and shoot formation. So again, it's creating like a new stem to start out on your plant. And cytokinins, they were discovered by Miller and Skoog. Honestly, that just sounds like a really cool, I don't know, like store or bar or something. Miller and Skoog. Anyways, they both were at the University of Wisconsin and they were working on developing methods for growing plant cells in tissue culture. And while doing this, it wasn't on purpose, they inadvertently discovered this compound that was really helping stimulate cell division. They actually had this extract from an autoclaved fish sperm DNA. That's what they were trying to grow cells from, was this fish sperm. But they discovered that there was this compound called kinetin, and so they were able to classify it into cytokinins because of its ability to stimulate cell division. So basically, this kinetin was really just helping cell division take off. Lots of growth was happening. So this cytokinin, specifically the 6-benzylaminopurine that is in your kiki paste, is what is helping a lot of cell division happen all at once and just really take off. So this is how you would use kiki paste if you are like me and have never heard of it, and I think it is so cool. What you do is you can get it like a Q-tip, that's how most people are applying it, because you don't really want to be using your finger and getting any sort of cross-contamination with bacteria or whatever you may have on your finger. So you just get a Q-tip, you put on about a pea-sized amount on your Q-tip, and you can stick it on an existing node. Some people will actually cut a node into the plant, and apply kiki paste, but you can also just use it on an existing node. If you're unsure what a node is, you can look it up, but it's like a bump 
on the stem. It's where either adventitious shoots, which we're creating with kiki paste, or adventitious roots can start forming. They are especially prevalent on vining plants, such as monsteras or some philodendrons, like your hartley philodendrons or your pothos plant. They have really noticeable notes because their bumps are quite large, but most all plants will have nodes. And so what you'll do is you'll apply this paste and it will encourage a new stem or a new shoot to form there. I did watch quite a few videos. When you're using it with orchids, you can remove this thin outer tissue layer. They would just get like a pair of tweezers and pull it off to kind of really expose that node. You're definitely not like digging into it and ruining the node and scraping it off or anything. But it's just like an outer protective, an outer tissue layer that's protective that you're peeling off. So if there's like a callus in the way, the outer tissue layer, pull that back and then you can apply the paste. And from there, it takes about two weeks or more to start seeing results. But there will be a new shoot that takes off from there. In fact, I saw this really cool video and I even messaged them when I saw, I was like, hey, like, how did you do this? Did you use Kiki Paste by chance because I've recently heard of it? I feel like this is the perfect time to be using it is like in this video where you guys turned around this plant and they confirmed that it was Kiki Paste. So what they did is someone had brought in their dying fiddle leaf fig and this nursery took it in and they posted this all on their Instagram they took it in November, and when I saw this video, it was March. So it obviously has taken a while for this plant to have a turnaround. I feel like fiddly figs take a while anyway. But they cut off the top of the fiddly fig. It was like super tall, but not much was growing on it. So they took off the top that actually had a few leaves that were coming out of it. And they, I'm sure they applied rooting hormone powder. They set it in water. And then they also removed some of the leaves near the bottom and applied kiki paste to the nodes on this fiddle leaf fig. And what happened is that new leaves emerged from where they had applied the kiki paste. And it looked so much better than before. It was amazing to me that you can simply apply this paste and new leaves would start coming out of it. Like, new shoots. I saw another video, I think someone did it with their pothos plant, if I'm thinking correctly, and they applied it to about like six or seven nodes along their pothos plant, and sure enough, in a few weeks, all these different shoots, these different stems were coming off of this one vine, making it like this really full vine. I'm not sure if that would be a bad idea for your plant, I think you would just need to keep up with it by applying the correct amount of fertilizer so it has enough nutrients to support the new growth and then also giving it enough sun to support that new growth that's going to be coming in. But other than that, I don't think there's like a negative effect from applying Kiki paste onto your plant. It's simply telling your plant, hey, we are making a new shoot right here at this node. Like that is what this hormone is telling your plant to do. And again, like I said, it is mostly been used for orchids throughout its history. 
And I feel like it's kind of taken off. Maybe social media has helped with this, I'm sure, because that's where I discovered it. But it's being used to help with all sorts of other plants and really helping promote adventitious shoots to form. And really that concludes my whole segment about biohacking your houseplant or how we are manipulating plant hormones to do certain things for our houseplants. I appreciate you listening so much. I hope that you have learned something new. I definitely did. It was a lot of science. I will not lie. But it was so much fun to dive into it and figure out how different things work. I just want to say thank you for being here and I hope that you will join me in two weeks for a brand new episode of the Plant School Podcast. Thank you so much for being here and for listening to the Plant School Podcast. I hope that you will join me for our next episode. And if you would like to support this podcast and keep it going, there's a link down in the show notes of this episode where you can donate to this podcast. And I really appreciate all that help. Or you can go to my merch store, which is also linked in the notes of this episode. And you can find some really cool plant-related shirts and stickers. And if you want to support the podcast but spend no money, feel free to share it with a friend, leave a review. All these things greatly help me out and allow me to keep doing this. Again, thank you so much for listening and for being here at the Plant School Podcast. Mm -hmm.